Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to open your word and to look at what it is telling us. Your message is always true. It is always right. What you say can never be thwarted by the wisdom of men, can never be challenged by anything of this earth. Lord, so we just want to understand it for our life and for our growth and godliness that you might be honored with us in all of things. And so we ask that you attend to our time. Give us wisdom in these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'll ask you to take your Bibles and return with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, as we continue our study of this whole issue of apostasy and how apostasy gets into and affects the church. It has been really a wonderful privilege to to be in this text. We've studied through Colossians before, but these things are great reminders to us as we gain a fresh and really invigorated glimpse, if you will, at our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the essence of what the Apostle Paul is highlighting. He has been highlighting Christ for who Christ actually is. And because of his pastoral desire for those in Colossae to not be taken captive by the onslaught of deceptive practices and teachings that have crept into the church. He is speaking about Christ. And as we begin, we we have to be asking ourselves a question. In light of the world in which we live, in light of the day and age in which we find ourselves and what we hear around us, the church climate of our day and what we see going on in denominations and and other places in evangelicalism even to this day, we have to ask ourselves this question. How is deception recognized? How is deception recognized? And probably even more importantly than that question, as we walk through uh, this text, is how is it remedied? Not only how is it recognized, but how is it remedied, particularly when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we know that deception is all around us in the world in which we live. Someone or something around us is always presenting some distorted picture of reality some kind of modification for what is really happening, some redefinition. What is actually true is now being redefined with partial truth. It isn't as if there is no truth involved in the definition. Truth is used, but the new definition only results in a falsity being promoted, which is promoted as truth. This has never been so prevalent than in our time in our modern world. There are new theologies being propagated at really lightning speeds in evangelical colleges and seminaries around the country. And some who graduate from those schools go to churches and begin to advance the lies that they hear. 
And many, as the Apostle Paul warns, have been taken captive through empty deception. And while the theological battles go on, and you can read about them and hear about them in some places, there is one plaguing question really that underlies it all. One plaguing question is the question I posed even to a doctor I was seeing this week, this last week. And that is this, how can man deal with the problem of sin? I was in for a physical, and the doctor and I got into some conversations about life in general and the situations going on in our country, and he began to talk to me about his own beliefs and, and what he was thinking about life itself and eternity and these kinds of things. And I told him, I'm not really concerned about any of those things. I know where I'm going. I'm certain about that. And I said, the problem, doc, is you have to ask the question, what are you going to do about your sin? And he said, yeah, that's true. I said, yeah, that's true. What are you going to do about your sin? This is the problem. How can man deal with the problem of sin? It seems strange in some ways that we should, as Christians, even be asking Christians that kind of question. But that is truly what is being debated and actually redefined when, it boil, when you boil all the arguments down. It doesn't matter what it's couched in, what packaging it comes in, whether it's under the titles that you hear today of critical race theory and all these other kinds of things. It, it, it's, it's all the same when you boil it all down. It comes down to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ being questioned. Is Jesus Christ sufficient to deal with the sin problem? Is Jesus Christ enough? Is Jesus Christ alone enough for all security and all direction in this life and for, in fact, all eternity? Is He enough? Is He sufficient? And so it's in light of that that the subtle question continues to be asked. Even if the words aren't said, even if they don't use that packaging and the argumentation, it is still the same question. How is the sin question dealt with in life? How do we deal with this idea, this issue, this question, this, this declaration that was even made in Hebrews chapter 9, and it's appointed for man once to die and then judgment? How do we deal with that? You can't run from it. You can't paint it with pretty colors, clever mind games, move the pieces around, disguise the reality. You'll never escape its presence. You'll never get away from the sin problem. doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are. Everyone must deal with it because it indwells each and every one of us. And the conscience knows it's there. Conscience knows it's there. I don't know if you read this in the papers years ago, but several years ago on the island of the Philippines, thousands of people lost their lives in a moment. In fact, one of the largest U.S. military bases had to be closed and abandoned there was property damage that approached billions of dollars. Why? Simply because Mount Pinatubo erupted after sitting dormant for more than 600 years. 
One reporter asked one of the scientists why there was so much destruction. And he answered in this way. He said, quote, when a volcano is silent for so many years, people forget that it's a volcano and begin to treat it like a mountain, unquote. And I think that's a great illustration of, of the sin of man. Because mankind has redefined it. They have glossed over it. They have actually tried to push it outside of them and say that they are the victims of some kind of circumstance and they think that it's no longer dangerous. How to deal with it has been redefined. It has been therefore softened. You deal with it through some kind of moral adjustment. You deal with it through some kind of man-made efforts to, to get by. You deal with it through some kind of drug, some kind of medicine, some kind of issue that some man-made psychoanalytic drug will somehow take care of. Man is told that he can go about life believing that sin won't produce the destruction that it has always promised. And even worse, it's really not your fault anyway. It's really not your fault. You're just a victim of your environment. You're just a victim of the circumstances, your upbringing. And if you want to win the war against sin, if you, if you want to believe in Jesus, that's okay. But, but it's going to take some sheer determination through your own efforts. It's going to take your, your own efforts if you're really going to have some kind of way to get by the judgment that's going to come when you die. Some effort on your part. And the deception is that the volcanic mountain is just quiet. That you can take care of it in time. You can take care of it on your own when in reality... Just like Mount Pinatubo, that volcanic mountain that couldn't be ignored or removed by man, trying to take care of it on your own is a grand deception. It's the grand deception. It has been perpetuated in subtle ways by every false religion and every kind of false teaching known to man. The falsity of what they're being taught in Colossae was simply going to end in a result that was a delusion of the truth. Therefore, it wouldn't be truth anymore. And for you and I to be protected from the counterfeits that come our way in every new evangelical area, we have to be equipped with a solid conviction that what we learned last Lord's Day, Jesus Christ alone is completely sufficient for salvation. And Jesus Christ is sufficient to make us complete. He is sufficient for salvation and He is sufficient to complete us in every way. In fact, just listen how the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed this to the people of his day. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, here's what he says. The Lord says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me 
that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. You want to boast about about anything in life? Then boast about this, that you know God and you know the, the only true and living God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness all the time. This is what Paul is trying to drive home into the minds of those who read this letter to the Colossian believers for the first time. And the Holy Spirit wants to have this driven into our spiritual minds as well. Stay away, this is the overarching principle, stay away from human wisdom. Stay away from the wisdom of man and its deluding influence upon your life and hold tightly to the undiluted absolute truth concerning Jesus Christ. Stay away from the wisdom of man and what the wisdom of man tries to drum up, and only hold to the absolute undiluted truth concerning Jesus Christ. Now you notice, last Lord's Day, I said that we were reminded in verse 10 of chapter 2, that Christ, that in Christ alone, we have been made complete. We have been made complete. He says in verse 10, in Him you have been made complete. You say, Pastor Rag, where do you get the point that you're bringing out? Right there. You don't have to be a rocket scientist here. This is pretty simple. We have been made complete in Christ. Paul's saying to the Colossian believers, listen, don't listen to the philosophies of men, to the empty deception of men, to traditions that come out of the heart of men, those elementary principles of the world, rather hold solely and wholly to Jesus Christ. He's the one who's sufficient. He's the one in whom you are made complete. The world offers you no help. And then... In verses 11 through 15, Paul begins to expand on that reality. He wants to expand on that for us even. So just follow along as I read verses 11 through 15. He says, and, so he's connecting it to verses 9 and 10. And in him, that is in Christ, this union with Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when He... When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, those are just wonderful words to hear. They're wonderful words for us as Christians to have just ringing in our ears because these words uh, have an emphasis that we are complete and our actual union with Christ is fully satisfying as we are joined with Him through faith. 
In other words, to go back to the beginning and the question that we asked before, the sin question is answered and only answered effectively and completely through a union with Jesus Christ. How does man deal with the sin problem? Man can't deal with it except through a union with Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way. And specifically, Paul highlights two two delusion-crushing facts. The delusion of the world says you need more, and yet here here Paul is saying, listen, I'm going to crush that delusion, those lies, those elementary principles with these two facts. First, in Christ alone, in Christ alone, deliverance from sin's penalty is complete. In other words, it's full. There is no sense in which any vestige of sin remains, and we'll look at that here in a minute. And then he says, in Christ alone, the deliverance from sin's bondage is complete. So you have these two crushing facts. The deliverance from sin's penalty is complete, and the deliverance from sin's bondage is complete. So this is all about getting into salvation life, right? How one begins and lives in this salvation life and living it victoriously in the here and now. Living salvation life right now as we are Christians in our day. Because the false wisdom of our day and the false wisdom that Paul is speaking against said that deliverance from sin's penalty could only be accomplished through some kind of stringent man-made moral effort. In other words, they would answer the sin question, how do we deal with sin, by saying, well, I have to work to be some kind of good person by some kind of moral standard, some kind of stringent following of the moral effort that, that is made for me to follow. You can believe in Jesus. That can be one of the things on the list. Believe in Jesus. Have this intellectual belief in Jesus. Or don't believe in Jesus at all. It really doesn't matter. You can go either way. But whether you do believe in Jesus or not, this fact still remains that life must contain also some standard moral virtue. Some standard by which you must live morally and of course we understand even in our day that moral virtue is redefined every time you turn around man's definition of moral virtue back in the 1950s is certainly different than what man's definition is today of moral virtue so whatever the direction the moral compass is pointing at the time live that way the world says and you can confidently be assured that the penalty of sin will not come to pass on your life in eternity Right? That's a lie, that's deception, that's delusion, that's human wisdom. That's the bottom line of it. Because Paul says in verse 11, In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now that seems like a really strange verse. Those are strange words for us to hear in the 21st century as we sit here. Because, but if you're a Jew, and if you were a Jew living in the time when Paul wrote that, it would make perfect sense to you. Right? But for you and I, we, we need some explanation. We need some understanding of this whole idea. So let me just begin by saying this. 
it is our union with Christ by faith. Just think of that word, union, and put the, the idea of actual union with Christ. It is our union with Christ that comes by means of faith. We are united with Christ that true circumcision occurs. It is by, by faith, this union with Christ, by faith, whereby true circumcision occurs. And it's a circumcision that goes way beyond anything that was possible even under the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law. If you were a Jew, you understood that under the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law, that you were to be, as a male, you were to be circumcised on the eighth day after your birth. If you want to read about that, you can go back to Leviticus chapter 12, read verses 1, 2, and 3, and you'll see that law put in place. And the primary purpose for that was that that was to be a sign to you as a male and to others that you talked to that you belonged to the covenant nation of Israel. That was a sign of the covenant. It also had, though, another purpose. And the other purpose was that it was a demonstration to that person that they were born sinful and they needed cleansing. They needed to have the flesh, if you will, in a demonstration in the physical sense, cut away. And so the cutting away of that portion of a male's skin was a graphic demonstration to them of this need for cleansing at the deepest level of their very being. Right? That's the part of the man whereby beginning of life proceeds and so it was a daily vivid reminder for that man every time that he was, in fact, infected by, in fact, permeated by sin. And so from the very beginning, this was the symbolic illustration of man's desperate need to have his inside cleansed from sin, the, the disease of sin that permeated him to be cleansed. In fact, Moses commands Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, with these words. He said, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Circumcise your heart. In other words, God was always concerned with the internal. The external was, was a symbol, but the internal was what God is concerned with. God wasn't concerned with the physical act. That was just a picture the physical act was ineffective against sin. It didn't do anything to deal with the penalty of sin. It only reminded the, the reality of this permeating reality of sin. And so Paul uses it here with these Colossian brothers and sisters as a clear metaphor of what takes place in Christ by faith. Right? He says in verse 11, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, in the death of Christ, Christ was cut away from life, humanity. His death on the cross didn't involve some portion of Him being removed. And thereby from that portion, the remainder of us in sin, we're still in sin. No, it was a violent removal of his life. 
And so by faith in Him, each and every one who knows Him by faith, we're spiritually in Christ, and thereby we were sharing in that death. In the eyes and the mind and the heart of God, as God carried out this transactional reality of salvation through Jesus Christ, all whom God had chosen before the foundation of the world that He would save were in Christ there at His death, even if you never breathed the breath before yet. In the mind and heart of God, you were there. In Him, in Christ, our penalty of sin was being cut away. Taken care of. In fact, as we'll see later, right, the certificate was canceled out. The certificate of debt, verse 14 says, was cut away. Our sinful penalty was cut away. We died to our former way of life, if you will. So that's completely different than, than the physical circumcision. Physical circumcision was, was a labor in that it was performed with hands. It was external. It was outside. It was done on the material body. And therefore, because of that, it was limited to only one person, the person who was therefore physically circumcised. And in the Mosaic Law, that was a restriction that was only for the males. It was only for males. It was automatic. It was this rote automatic carrying out of the law because it was often done with even little interest in what it truly meant. Over time, it just became a ritual. But in contrast, circumcision in Christ is completely different. Circumcision in Christ is spiritual and complete. It's inward, not outward. It deals with the spiritual heart on the inside. It, it's where the center of sin is, our, our very being on the inside. Isn't, it isn't just outside. In fact, the Bible tells us in, in Corinthians that Jesus Christ became sin for us. Christ became our sin and was cut away for us. And by faith, we were in him on that day when he died, when he was cut away. This is why Paul can say in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Right? Because you were in Christ in his death... In dying to sin, therefore, so too we were buried with him by baptism. All right? Paul isn't talking about water baptism here, by the way. There's no water in this passage when he's speaking of baptism. If we were to put that in there and speak of water baptism as the reality to which we must do in order to be saved, we would therefore put in the context of Paul's words, a ritual that is necessary for salvation. And yet that is not what the Bible teaches. We are called, we are commanded to be baptized with water, but that is because of salvation, not in order to receive and get salvation. 
In other words, it's an outworking of someone who is already a believer and now is walking in obedience to Christ and following the words of Christ to be baptized, to proclaim Christ and what He's done for them through the waters of baptism, representing a death and a burial and a resurrection. And yet, no one ever got saved through being baptized. What Paul is speaking about here then is the complete spiritual union with Christ, not only in his death, but also then in his burial. So in the natural realm, when we think about just the natural realm, the physical realm, only dead people are buried. Right? All dead people are buried in the normal course of events. That's the reality of the physical life and death. And this is what Paul uses to describe the complete union we have with Christ. Right? When Christ's physical body was cut away from him at his death, our sinful body, our sin was cut away with him, and we also died to sin. And so... The Apostle Paul could say in Galatians 2, verse 20, which is a verse many of us have memorized, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live here in the flesh, in the physical, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. You see, I carry myself around with the reality of the union with Christ, and thereby I am dead to sin. That's what Paul is saying here to the Colossian believers. He's saying, listen, since you died with Christ, you died to sin. Therefore, you are completely delivered from the penalty of sin. There is no penalty for sin for you anymore. No eternal penalty. That has been taken care of. The old person, the old sin-controlled flesh has been cut away in Christ. And the death penalty is gone. The eternal judgment of God bore upon you, the wrath of God upon you is no longer there. One man rightly said it this way, quote, In a world that is always seeking the full life, Believers are the only ones for whom it is truly possible. Unquote. It's true. For a world that says, look, get all you can get, live the way you want, look, do what you can, be the best you can be, be whoever you want to be. It doesn't really matter. You're acceptable because you are who you are, and you will be completely free in that. No, believers are the only ones who can be truly free. We died with Christ, and we were buried with Christ. And verse 12 goes on to say, and you were also raised up with Him through faith. Raised up with Him. Now I want us to notice that in the words of the Apostle Paul there, that resurrection is a now present reality. You see that? You see what he says? that you were also raised up with Him. Christ was raised some 2,000 plus years ago. And I, by faith in Christ, was raised with Him. 
Resurrection is a now reality. Far too often we think of it something just far in the distance. Oh, one day I will be raised from the dead. And in one sense, there's some truth to that. Yet something has taken place already. If we are in Christ by faith, if we are unified with Christ through faith in Him, then you have been raised in Christ. You have been raised. We might even just simply say it this way. The deal's done. It's a done deal. It's a done deal in an ever-present nowness kind of way. And all that needs to take place in the physical realm is a physical reality of that resurrection happening physically, but the reality in the mind and heart of God is you have been raised from the dead. There's no way you won't be raised. And the guarantee, the guarantee, beloved, of that physical resurrection, that it will take place, that it's a guarantee to take place, that it's ironclad and must happen, is based upon the absolute fact that the spiritual resurrection has already taken place in Christ. You realize for you and I to not be raised again physically from the dead would be that Christ would have to not exist. Jesus Christ would have to not exist at all. But because He lives, we too already live. We already live. We are resurrected in Christ now And each one of us as Christians, each and every day, need to let that truth just resonate and saturate in us in our lives as new creatures in Christ. We need to live as resurrected people. If we're going to win daily, if we're going to win against the onslaught of false teaching about how to overcome the sin problem, how to deal with life, how to deal with sin issues, then we better be daily reminding ourselves that by faith we died with Christ, and by faith we were buried with Christ, and by faith we were made alive and new by the working of God, so that it will empower us to live resurrected lives now. That's not what the philosophy of our day says. The philosophy of our day says do it on your own. The philosophy of our day says, follow this technique, do this little thing, do these 12 steps, keep this ritual, keep that plan, pray to some saint, continue to pay this amount of money. Listen, that's delusion, that's a lie, don't believe it, don't buy it. In Christ alone there is deliverance from sin's penalty and that deliverance is complete. Secondly, Paul says in Christ alone, deliverance from sin's bondage is complete. Not only is the penalty taken care of, but the bondage to sin is complete as well. You you notice in verses 11 and 12, the penalty of sin is taken taken place and is, is handled by Christ alone. Right? It's in Christ. It was a circumcision in Christ. It was a burial in Christ. It was a resurrection in Christ. And that never can take, be taken place through some kind of ritualistic act. You cannot go through the motions in some humanistic kind of way to deal with those things. It has to happen in Christ or it doesn't happen at all. 
And then here in verses 13 to 15, the deliverance from the bondage of sin is complete. Notice, apart from any human effort also. And when, he says, verse 13, you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh. So there was your condition, both spiritually and physically. You were gone. You were under the penalty of sin. He, who's the he? We cannot get, a pro, get rid of pronouns in the Bible. There is no non-gender Bible. God is who He described Himself to be. He, God, made you alive together with Christ, with Him. How? Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Wait, we were dead in our transgressions, verse 13 says, and yet God made us alive together with Him by means of the forgiveness of all our transgressions. What does that forgiveness look like? He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting as decrees against us, which was hostile to us. It was the penalty. It was the verdict. It was upon us. We had to pay that. We were indebted to God by means of what He had had commanded, and we did not do because of our nature, sinful. We didn't want to have anything to do with God. And so the decrees were against us, hostile to us, and yet He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Nailed it to the cross. We cannot miss this picture here. We cannot miss what Paul is trying to say, how we were before salvation. This was our condition. We were dead. Someone has asked me several times over the years, what about dead is not dead? People try to say, well, I can still do some good. Well, you're dead. What about dead is not dead? Dead is dead even though you thought you were alive. You're dead. We were like those people living close to Mount Pinatubo. We were like them treating the mountain as if it wasn't a volcano. We thought we were alive, but we were really dead and we were just waiting for the result to come without warning. We ignored the problem. In fact, we redefined it. We said we didn't have a problem. In fact, now we're saying it's outside of us. In fact, as long as it doesn't affect me, it must not be that dangerous to me. Go on living as you always have. Life is good. And then death. You and I, before Christ were there, we were dead. We were in the bondage of sin. That's the idea. This complete control where sin permeated everything. We were prisoners of our own sin. But God, notice, God, not us, not by our help, not by our influence, not by our input, not by any of those things. He made us alive. We were dead and we needed outside intervention if we were going to be alive at all. The only one who could bring the outside intervention to make us alive was the one who creates life, and that is God Himself. And so He makes you alive with Christ. Before that, we're completely empty. Now in Christ, we're full. 
Before we were incomplete, now we are complete. Paul is saying to these Colossian brothers and sisters, listen, don't buy the lies the world's trying to say. Don't buy the lies of the system. Don't buy the lies of the religious zealots of the day trying to say you can do it your way. Don't buy any of that. You are complete, and that completeness comes in Christ alone. You have been fully released from the penalty of sin. You have been fully released from the bondage of sin. Sin no longer holds you captive. Now you can do what is right. What used to hold you captive, what was over you as a certificate of debt, this consisting of decrees against you is now taken out of the way. God nailed it to the cross. Every sin, every past, every present, every future sin. That doesn't mean you sin indiscriminately now because you say, oh, I believe in Jesus. No. You don't do that. You live for Him. Right? You notice verse 20. We'll get to that here maybe next week. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world... Here's the question Paul has. Then why in the world, as if you're living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees? Why in the world are you going about doing this process of human wisdom? Why are you doing that? People telling you, don't handle this, don't taste this, don't touch this. Do this and you'll be okay. Do this and you'll be okay. Don't do that, you'll be okay. Right? They're, they're, these are things destined to perish with the using. In other words, they only last for some time. They're not eternal. And they're in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. They're matters to be sure the appearance of wisdom in what? Self-made religion. They're wisdom born out of self-made man-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgences. They're only going to help you for a moment. And that will only be a temporary help and then never touch the eternal. You see, the world would have us to believe that as Christians, we can't really be sure. We can't really be sure about our salvation. We can't really be sure about who we are. We can't really be sure whether we know where we're going. I am, that doctor I was dealing with looked at me kind of with stunned eyes when I said, I'm, I'm certain where I'm going, so I'm not concerned. I think in some ways he thought like many friends of yours probably think when you unbelieving friends, when you speak to them that way, coworkers, they think you're just a wacky. You're, you're a loon. You're just one of those weird people. In fact, today you're, you're an extremist. You're an extremist. You're a radical. You see, the world would like us to believe that in Christ we have something for life, right? Well, okay, that's a good crutch for you if you believe in Jesus. That's good. That's something to attach to your life. Good. But real joy only comes if all your desires are met. Real joy in life comes only if everything you ever desired gets fulfilled for you now. And therefore, you must allow that to happen. 
And those desires, by the way, they're met through others in your life, giving you whatever it is you want. You get to have whatever it is you want, and you deserve it. You're entitled to it, in fact. The philosophy of our world tells us not to deny self, but get all you can get while the getting's good. Get it now. And you know what? Their, their thinking is logical to them because they know not Christ. They don't have no relationship with God. And if this is all they can have, then this is heaven for them and certainly get all you can. This is not heaven for us. This is not glory for us. The getting here isn't the good. It's in Christ. And in Christ we have all we will ever need. Why? Because God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put, a, put them on public display. He put them on public display. Jesus Christ was a public display that all those who said they could do it their way was a sham. He triumphed over all of them through the cross, which is foolishness to the world but it's wisdom and salvation to us who are believing. See, in Him, beloved, we are complete. In Him, we have been released from sin's penalty. The world says, no, you haven't. The world says, even if they acknowledge God, well, if I'm good enough, there's no surety. There's no certainty in it. And yet, that's exactly what the Word of God says, in Christ there is absolute surety. In a few weeks from now, we're going to start the Gospel of Luke, and I just want to end our time this morning just by showing you this little nugget. Luke chapter 1. Anytime you ever think you need something else, anytime you ever think that the Word of God isn't sufficient, anytime you ever think have some delusion come your way, and it sounds really good, but it undermines the truth. Notice the whole point of the Gospel of Luke. The Apostle, or Luke, not Apostle, is writing obviously here to what is identified here as a person named Theophilus, verse 3. And notice what he says. He says, it seemed fitting for me, verse 3, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, and he means from the beginning of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. In other words, from Luke's context of the beginning, he doesn't go all the way back to the beginning of when beginnings began. But from that beginning, I felt necessary to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent philosopher, Theophilus. Why? So that you might know the exact truth. This is the exact truth. It isn't a fabrication of truth. It isn't an addition to what we have in the other Gospels as truth. This is, from the perspective, through the Holy Spirit's leading in Luke's life, the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Luke is going to tell us 
the exact things that are true about all that we've been taught. And the Gospel of Luke is all about what the other Gospels are about, which is about the central theme of the entire Scriptures, which is Jesus Christ. You can have certainty, exact certainty, certainty that will answer the question, certainty that will give you strength, certainty that will encourage you, certainty that will bolster you up in difficult times, knowing all about Jesus Christ. All about Jesus Christ. This is the very same thing Paul's doing to the Colossian believers. Saying, listen, what you need, what you need to have in your mind's eye each and every day and every moment is Jesus Christ, sufficient, whereby you are complete, and every sin is dealt with in Christ. You don't need anything else. You need nothing else. Paul says, this is why we don't need anything else. We have Christ. Somebody comes along and says, oh, you can, you can kind of believe in Jesus, but, but I, I believe, yeah, I believe in God. I believe Jesus, but, I, but I'm still going to continue my works because I'm just not sure. Well, guess what? I am sure. I am sure. And you ought to be sure, too, if you believe in Jesus Christ. Well, we'll get more next time. This is why we celebrate the Lord's table. In order that we might remember all that we have in Christ. And even this moment, even these are just a shadow. A shadow of what is to come. A shadow. Well, let's pray together and let's examine our own hearts as we are commanded in Scripture. Examine our hearts before we come to the Lord's table. And then Tim will come up and lead us in song and then we'll have communion together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, how strengthening it is for us. How encouraging it is to know that while the world may go directions that seem rather logical in some way is actually foolish. Foolish deception, delusion. And the only thing that's true and right is Your Word. And so we take everything captive to Your Word. Thank You for an understanding of Jesus Christ that in Him we are secure. We don't need to worry. We don't need to wonder. For you have forgiven sin. The penalty is not there. We know that ahead of time. And so even now when we sin, we go to you and we ask to be forgiven. You forgive us freely because he is faithful and just. So in him we have forgiveness that is fully given to us. And thereby we have the spirit that you have granted to us that we might live for you. Help us do that, Lord. Examine our hearts now as we approach Your table. And if there be anything in us that might be sinfulness against You that we know of, things that we know of against our brothers and sisters in Christ, then may we let these elements pass. So thank You for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.